This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. So guys, I want to jump on in again. Welcome you. Thank you for being here. If you're here in person, if you're watching online, thank you for joining us. I know uh, I saw Rolling Hills. we got a number of people we know over there. Mr. Clarence, Miss Dorothy, Miss Nancy, Miss Barber. We love you guys. We thank you every week for joining us and being part of service from Rolling Hills Apartment Complex. But guys, here at Harvest, we, the Lord has brought us together, and we just believe that we're stronger together than we are individually. And so, so we, we, we have chosen to love God, our Father, and we want to be just like Him. So we choose to, to love others and to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world today. Uh, and we gather together in small groups and community throughout the week, but we still love Sundays when all of our community groups come together and we worship here corporately. I say it every week, we're, we're a small expression of the body of Christ. Guys, here at Church of the Harvest, we're just another community group. We're a small group, a home cell group in the body of Christ. How many of you are glad we're part of a much bigger family? And so, but here we're part of a small group. We're a small expression of the body of Christ. We love people and we serve the world as the hands and feet of Jesus. If you're part of the Harvest family, what is our vision? And we do that through what? If you're new here, they, they actually do that without it on the screen as well. We have this down pat because this is what we believe. Everything we do is about community, discipleship, and outreach pointing to Jesus. Guys, I'm excited about this um, series that we're in called The Life of Worship. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't intend for it to go this long. But uh, every time I say this is going to be the last one, another one gets tacked on. And so uh, I, I thought today was going to be the last one. I think there might be another one. So just, just hang on. Have you been enjoying this series, though, A Life of Worship? Recognizing that worship is not a 20 to 30 minute period during a church service where we sing songs. That's not what it's about. Worship is so much deeper. It's so much bigger than that. Worship isn't something that you do. A worshiper is who you are. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's who we are. Um, I, I don't have time to wrap up from all the previous ones, but uh, I'll just give you what we talked about real quick. We, uh, we talked about worshipers live a life of uplifted hands. Worshipers live a life of generosity. Worshipers live a life of sincerity with their hearts poured out. Worshipers live a life bowed down. Worshipers live a life of excellence. Worshipers live a life that is true. Worshipers live a life of extravagant love. We talked last week, Pastor Sean talked about worshipers live a life of service, right? Moving on. Ready for the next one? Moving on. Guys, um, I, I don't know what you think, but I tend to think that I'm married to the best woman in the world. I think she's the most beautiful, the smartest, the wittiest. She loves the Lord. What more could I possibly ask for? Now, all of you married men, I hope you're disagreeing with me because that would just be weird if you didn't. And secondly, I hope you believe your wife is the best woman in the world, the finest woman in the world, right? I hope you believe, I hope you believe that. In a similar way, guys, I'm convinced I live in the greatest country on earth. You may be watching online and you may be from another country. You may think you're from the greatest country on earth. That's cool. But I believe that even on our worst day in the United States of America, we're the greatest country on earth. I consider myself to be patriotic. Uh, you know, I, guys, I can tear up when the national anthem is played. I just, I, I love our country. I've had a lot of people in my family that have served in the armed forces. Uh, two weeks ago, sat for 10 hours on a plane next to, of all people, a guy who was retired special forces. 
And I took the moment to look him in the eyes and tell him how much I appreciated his service. Wow, I already got to be careful, right? I love our country. Love it. I encourage people to vote. Anytime you are given stewardship and the ability to direct a nation, guys, you have to take advantage of that. People say, well, I just, it's such a, I just don't know if it really counts. Does it really? Has it, it sounds like this servant who was given one talent, honestly. We've got to take responsibility and we've got to take advantage of that. And we vote our biblically informed conscience with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen? <laughs> we need to be involved in local politics. We need to be involved in national politics. I believe it 100%. So again, I hope that you believe that you live in the greatest nation on earth. But let me say this. When I die, I'm not going to Washington, D.C. Praise the Lord. Right? No offense if you're from D.C. For real. Um, when I die, I'm not going to Washington, D.C. Right? Guys, I recognize that while I love my nation, it is not my ultimate allegiance by a long shot. Not by a long shot, right? Because many years ago, I devoted myself to a king, to a Messiah, to God's final king who would establish an upside down, others first, back of the line kingdom. It's like, what? Where the king lays down his life for his subjects. Not, he's not requiring his subjects to lay down his life for him. He lays down his life first for his subjects. He goes so far as to say, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Amen? Amen. He is a king who consistently rejected the tools and the postures and the attitudes and even the weapons of this world. Today, I want to talk about worshipers live a life of devotion to a different kingdom. Worshippers live a life of devotion to different kingdom. If you're following along in notes, um, you can obviously watch the screen, but if you scan that QR code again or you open the YouVersion Bible app, you can actually hit more and hit events and the notes will pop up on your mobile device. Worshippers live a life of devotion to a different kingdom. And guys, I'm going to, I got a lot that I want to say. It actually has been stored up for a while. And I want you to hear me. I want you to hear my heart in this because the, this, this idea that we, our allegiance is to a different kingdom goes against the grain of how we were raised and what we have been taught. And what it looks like isn't what we've been raised to think it should look like. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. You guys remember the temptations of Jesus? There was one particular temptation um, of Jesus where, you know, I, I think that it was something that has become far too important to people, especially within the church. And I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to look at this. And in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 8, it says, The devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Other versions say in their power. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. 
And how many of you are glad that our Savior looked him dead in the eyes and said, no? He said, I don't want it. He said, no. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't want it because he didn't come to inherit a kingdom. He didn't come to fix a kingdom. He didn't come to jack up a kingdom. He didn't come to upgrade a kingdom or take it to 2.0. He came to do something totally new. He came to establish something from scratch that had never been done before on the earth and will never be done again. He came to establish a new kingdom because he was a different kind of king. An other's first kingdom ruled by a king who did not come to win according to the world's standards. You guys understand what I'm saying? As we define winning, many would say in the world that Jesus lost. What kind of Messiah, Savior was that? Live this humble life, serving, loving, and being killed? Does that look like victory to the world? Of course not. The idea to lose on purpose for a purpose is confounding to us and doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus turns to us as his followers and says, now follow me. And we have a hard time understanding it because it's a different kingdom. We have a hard time understanding what he's telling us to do sometimes because we've been so, we've had the world system and this kingdom so ingrained in our minds and our hearts that we have a hard time understanding. So let me talk about the disciples here for a minute. So you got Peter, Peter being one of the most famous disciple, right? Peter follows Jesus for these years. And we know that Jesus, Peter didn't buy into all this stuff that Jesus, he, he just, I don't think he just didn't understand it. I, I think none of the disciples really bought into a lot of this stuff. They couldn't really get it because we know what happens to them. So Peter walks with Jesus for three years, right? He probably heard the Sermon on the Mount 23 times. And I think before Jesus died, he still expected Jesus to throw off his rabbi, his rabbinical robe. And he'd be standing there in tights with a big M on his chest. Messiah, we're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to take back our land. It's going to be the golden years of Israel again. Isn't it what they were expecting? All the way to the cross, this is what they were expecting. They had known, they knew from the, they had much of the Old Testament memorized. They knew the Messiah was a warrior. And they knew that he was going to win. It didn't look like winning. It's like what in the world is happening, right? So to the very end, I believe this is what the disciples thought. And so in the garden, Jesus is finally arrested, right? And can you imagine Peter just being like, oh no, was he like serious? I mean, he, he just surrendered himself to those who came to arrest him, and he didn't even put up a fight. He gave himself up willingly. And in that moment, all of Jesus' followers, well, I guess they unfollowed him, right? We know they ran, didn't they? Fast forward to the other side of the resurrection, and look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. I don't know if that sounds good or not right there. Ugh. They're like, what? Who committed no sin. He never sinned, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He never lied. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Man, the church could learn from this one. And while he was suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to the judge, to, the, to him who judges righteously. What do you think of verse 21? What did Jesus do? He suffered for me, you and me and set an example for us to follow. Woo! Let's go, right? It's like, what? Is this the victory we're looking for? Guys, I want you to not just look at this as a Bible passage. This is a letter from, Paul, from Peter that we're reading. This is a letter from the most famous disciple. And actually, we know from the book of Acts that, that, that Peter couldn't read or write. So I believe here he's like an old man. And he's reflecting on what all has happened. And he's dictating these words. And they're being written down for him. This isn't something that he read about. This isn't something he heard about. These are things that he experienced firsthand that he's writing, right? It's these things that he personally witnessed. And I don't believe they made any sense to him until after the resurrection. He said that when they hurled insults at Jesus, Peter was there. He saw it. And he would tell you in that moment, Jesus did exactly what he had always taught and the disciples thought were impossible. He didn't retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. How many of you know, these are our marching orders too. I believe there's a lot of people who are resistant to the gospel of Jesus because the church hasn't always gotten this one right. Somebody hurls threats and we hurl them right back and we look just like everybody else does. We don't look any different than the world. Peter said, instead of making threats, calling them names, fighting back, instead of resisting, instead of, of, of insisting on winning, he entrusted himself to, the one, to him who judges righteously. Like I said, I don't believe any disciples got this till after the resurrection. And, and this concept, I think, is, is still, like I say, it goes against the grain some, and it's difficult to us because in some ways as human beings, it feels like we were kind of wired to win. We, we, how many of you would say you recognize you got a little bit of a competitive spirit about you? We, we played a game at community group the other night. Who do we, where's Miss Mickey? I don't know if Miss Mickey's here. She was like, you got a competitive family. I was like, yeah, yeah, we kind of do. We got this competitive thing inside of us. And I understand that. But that makes this all the more difficult to understand. Guys, these folks knew Jesus. They had seen it all. They were up close with him. And at the very end of their time with Jesus, they still didn't get it because this was so difficult for them to comprehend. So, so let's look for a moment at the last week of Jesus's life. The very last week of Jesus's life, Jesus is, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Y'all remember this? He's on his way to Jerusalem. And He's going to be crucified in just a few days. They're on the way. And when we look at the way Scripture reads, it looks like, like Jesus was out front ahead of them. I mean, he, brother was in a hurry. He, he was, I mean, he was, headed, he was headed straight for it. He was headed straight for Jerusalem. And, and during that, you guys remember what the folks with the guys behind him were talking about? They were saying, who gets to be second and who gets to be third in the kingdom? Right? Who gets to be second? Who gets to be third? Now, now we know Jesus gets to be number one. He's the Messiah. But who gets to be number two and who gets to be number three? They don't know. They're on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover. They know that. They don't know that Jesus is going to be the lamb, right? They're still assuming that he's coming to conquer in the natural and to win. And, and if you're close to the winner, you're basically the winner too, right? Yeah? I mean, yeah, yeah. depends on what team you're on. I, I give Aaron a hard time. Saying, he's like, we're winning. We? We who? The New York Giants? Oh, you, I didn't know you played for them. Yeah, you know, right? <laughs> 
You affiliate with them, you agree with them, you're part of them. They win, you win. They still didn't understand. The Gospels tell us that Jesus had been talking for a while trying to prepare them for this moment. He had told them over and over again, he said, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be spit upon, and I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to die. Did he not tell them that over and over again? He did. And on the road to Jerusalem, on the way to this moment, two of the disciples are going, you know, that sounds awful. But after all that, who gets to be second and who gets to be third? Right? I mean, we may hang back during the spitting and flogging part. That sounds terrible. And we don't even know if that's going to happen. It's probably metaphorical. But who gets to be second and who gets to be third? They're still pushing. Who gets to be at the top? And interestingly, Peter tells us that Jesus was in such a hurry that he actually takes a shortcut through Samaria. And as they're going through Samaria, the sun starts going down. And so he sends a couple of the guys ahead. And he says, hey, go secure lodging for us, doesn't he? And, and I told, we talked about a couple of weeks ago about how in ancient times, hospitality was a big deal. You tur- didn't turn away somebody who needed hospitality. And so he sends two guys ahead and says, hey, go secure lodging for us tonight before we go into Jerusalem tomorrow. And so they go on ahead. And then they come back. And they bring the report. And they're like, Jesus, we've got some bad news. By the way, did you know we're in Samaria? Did you know they don't like Jews? Yeah, we're Jewish. They said, you can't stay in our city. They won't give us lodging. Nobody will. Nobody will offer us hospitality. Isn't that what happened? So, so basically, we're told that in the moment after that, James and John come up with a great response. They come up with a great response to the, to the Samaritans. Now, before we talk about the response, let's talk about when we say James and John. Guys, you know which John this is, right? This, this is John. This is John 3.16, John. Okay? This is that same John. He would write down a few years later the most famous verse in the Bible. You know, we, we know, everybody knows that God is love. John was like the first person to put that down on paper. This is that very same John, John who stared into the eyes of Jesus. So when James and John found out nobody would give lodging to them and to the Messiah, what did they do? Luke 9.54 says, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, we'll teach you to reject our king. Jesus, can we do it? Can we call down fire now? Can we destroy them all? Can we wipe them out? And you know, sometimes we have some very similar thoughts. But it's unimaginable. They spent three years with Jesus, and they're still trying to win by earthly standards. They're still trying to use the weapons of the world to get their way and to accomplish what they believe is God's will. They're still trying to incorporate the tone, the tactics, the attitudes of the kingdoms of this world to accomplish something for God. And what does Jesus say to them? He says the same thing that he says to demons. He says, I rebuke you. Yikes. You imagine Jesus thinking, Father, you know, I probably should have picked some other guys. I mean, for real. (laughs) I should have got some other ones, you know. They've heard me teach. They've heard me preach. They've seen me heal. They've seen how I respond. They've seen me. They saw me heal the Roman centurion servant. They still think I'm going to throw off my robe. And I'm going to be a warrior who comes in and conquers in the natural and overthrows Rome. 
I'm going to take the bull by the horns and employ the methods of the world to force my way into Jerusalem and take back a kingdom. They still didn't get it all the way to the end. It's a difficult concept to understand. And I think the reason that sometimes they had an issue um, with the teachings of Jesus, an example of Jesus, and sometimes we have issue with the teaching example of Jesus is we just don't believe it'll work. Let me give you an example. What do you think would have happened on day one when Jesus called the disciples? Y'all remember that when he called the disciples? He said, follow me, right? I'll make you fishers of men. What do you think would have happened if he had told them the whole story on day one? Hey, guys, I'm the Messiah. And they're thinking, okay, the warrior, come to take back the kingdom. All right, yeah. I want you to follow me. By the way, things are going to get tough. Uh, I'm going to die. It's going to be nasty. You're not going to see Rome overthrown in your days, and you're going to be reviled. They'd have been like, whoa, this don't sound like victory to me. Right? I, I think we would have had less than 12 sign up. That would have been an empty sign-up sheet. They're still looking at things from a worldly perspective, from the earthly kingdom. Now, after the resurrection, they said, whoa, wait a minute. He's a different kind of king. And he's establishing a different kind of kingdom than we understood. An upside-down kingdom where the king gives his life for his subjects and says, this is my example that I'm leaving for you to follow. And I don't believe that came into, I don't believe all that came into focus until that moment when he said, now, after the resurrection, this is my example, now follow me. You do for others what I've done for you. And the new kingdom that Jesus established would be fueled by that very command. Love others as I have loved you, right? How many of you know that, um, how many of you know that Jesus fulfilled all the law. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Thank God he fulfilled the law. And so when his requirement, his command to love others as I have loved you was not a law to be added to all the other laws. It was to replace all the other laws, right? He says, I'm establishing a new covenant, a new agreement between man and God in my blood. And for Christ followers, for Christ followers, there's really only one command. Love as I have loved you. This is what Jesus left us. This new command that I give you. Love others not as you want to be loved. <laughs> not the way that you want to be loved. Love others the way that I loved you. Guys, how many of you know this is not the golden rule? I mean, this is, <laughs> if anything, this is the platinum rule. He says, I want you to love one another the way I've loved you. That is the command. And that command should affect our behaviors and our attitudes and our actions, and most importantly, I would say our reactions to everybody that we come in contact with. Jesus said, take your behavioral and your relational cues from me. And I think in that moment, Jesus could have gone around the world, around the room, and he could have spoken to each one of them. He could have said, Matthew, you remember the day I met you? And he'd been like, yes, sir. And he would have said, well, um, yeah, you were a tax collector. You were considered a traitor by your family, by your people, by your nation. How did I treat you? Peter, uh, Matthew, Matthew would have said, you invited me to come and follow you. And he says, extend that same grace to every person that you ever come in contact with. He could have gone all the way around the room to each and every one of them. 
And, and there was story. <laughs> Think about Nathaniel. Nathaniel, remember when we met? Nathaniel would have said, yeah. He, he said, what was your response? Like, Nazareth. What good thing can come from Nazareth? You know, oh, he's like, you, 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 you trash me and my family and our ball team and everything else. And what did I say to you? He said, you invited me to come and to follow you. And he said, extend that same grace and that same love to every person that you come in contact with, every person. And then the very next day, after he said, love as I've loved you, that was at the Last Supper, the very next day, he would put on a demonstration of love that took their breath away. He died for your sin and he died for my sin. And Jesus made a point in that moment. He wasn't kidding. It was a new day. It was a new world. It was a new kingdom. A different kind of king was at the head of this. And he said, I want you to follow me. And in the weeks following, you know that he recruits of all people, Saul of Tarsus. Does that not seem backwards? Is that not a backwards kingdom? Now, the Bible tells us that he was a violent man. As a matter of fact, many believe the New Testament has kind of dumbed down the violence of Paul a little bit, that he was actually an extremely violent man. If you pause and look at some of the passages where he talks about himself, you can see his character before Christ. Violent man, doing the will of God in a violent way, absolutely convinced that he is doing God's will by arresting, torturing, and stoning followers of the way. That's what they were called before. They were called Christians, right? Followers of the way. He believed that he was doing God's will, and this is how God's will is to be done. And then Paul surrenders to the risen Christ. And shortly he puts down his violent ways and he goes on to write 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Do you not see what happened? How Would you ever would have thought Jesus trying to recruit Saul would have been the way? Would have thought that if Jesus, if you'd been one of the disciples, Jesus asked you advice, hey, should we recruit Saul? You'd been like, no, you don't want to recruit Saul. Seriously, don't recruit Saul. He's not the one. We're part of an upside-down, backwards kingdom compared to this world. Sometimes we forget. Paul never again became the violent activist that he was before he met Jesus because he understood what we missed. He lived in this hinge moment between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He could see the Old Covenant. He knew the way he'd be raised and the things that he'd been taught and the things that he had studied. And he saw Jesus and he saw this new kingdom and he knew something totally different and totally new. A new king come to establish a different kind of kingdom. But they're still going, but will it work? But is what he's saying, but will it work? It doesn't matter. If it'll work, he's the king. You know, when you watch somebody get crucified, and then days later you have breakfast with them on the beach, might ought to listen to what they got to say. Something's up, right? We're going to do whatever he says. And the church flared to life. In those moments, in those days, after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. They recognized their allegiance was to a new, different king, a new, different kingdom. And how many of you know, it wasn't just the teachings of Jesus that changed their life in that moment. They didn't understand the teachings of Jesus. They didn't begin to understand them, I don't believe, until after the resurrection. But suddenly, they're having breakfast with them on the beach after he was crucified. And they're going, oh, you hold life in your hands. You're a new, a different king. And I believe 
they understood what he meant when he said he entrusted his life to the one who judges righteously. And I believe everything began to come into focus. And you know what they did from there? They changed the whole world. They seed, they seed, they sowed seeds that would eventually topple the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire on earth. Within 300 years, the Roman Empire would be Christian. The same empire that crucified him. They would be Christian. How did they do it? How did the disciples accomplish this? By calling down fire? Nope. They did it by following the example of Jesus. There was a piece of literature that survived this first century, and it talked about the life of the early Christians. And it told, tells us that they gathered together early in the morning on the first day of each week before work. And that first day of the week before work, they would gather together and they would swear to be faithful to God and to one another. They swore to fidelity, to love one another, to be true to their neighbors, to return good for evil, and to stay committed to their marriages. And then they would sing a hymn to the Lord. Is that not beautiful? And then people would come, Rome would send people to investigate them. These investigators, they were generally Roman governors. These Roman governors would come to investigate these pockets of, of new people who were acting so strangely. And they'd be like, you know what? We're supposed to arrest these people, but, but they're the best citizens in our community. I mean, I know they won't swear allegiance to Caesar, but my goodness, they're the most trustworthy people we've ever met in our lives. And, and they, 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 these people, they go out at night to the outskirts of the village and they rescue all the babies. Back then, that was super late-term abortion. You couldn't kill the baby, and so they, would, they didn't want it. They would put it outside of the city, out in the elements. The Christians were known for going out there and getting them in the middle of the night and bringing them back into their homes and raising them as their own. They said, you know, whenever a plague breaks out, this would happen frequently. They would abandon a whole city when a plague would break out. As everybody was running from the plague, moving, getting out as quick as they could, the early church was known for running in and caring for the sick, sometimes dying in the process. And the Roman governors are going, what kind of people is this? Who does that? Guys, the Old Testament didn't require this, and really the New Testament didn't require it. Love required it. They understood something new had come. And the moment they would try to step away and depart from the ways of Jesus and, and his approach and his posture and his attitude, they would recognize they were picking up the tools and the weapons of this world and they couldn't possibly win because you can't employ the methods of this world to accomplish the will of God. And they understood that. And this has been on my mind for a while. That we need to understand that we're, we have allegiance to a different kingdom. Doesn't mean we're not involved and concerned with what's going on in the natural. But our allegiance to the kingdom far supersedes it. Guys, in the year 2020, people went nuts. Much of the church went nuts. Do you not agree? It was crazy. How many of you were standing around going, what in the world is happening right now? And this, I mean, have people lost their ever-loving mind. Between COVID and racial tensions and, and politics and, I mean, toilet paper shortages, murder hornets, 
What? What is happening? Is this a movie? It felt to me in those moments that much of the church of Jesus started losing its mind as well. I'm sitting there going, what is happening to us? Because how many of you know that nothing changed in the kingdom of God? It didn't stutter. I mean, they didn't call an emergency meeting for plan B. Oh, we need to employ, you know, these new tactics. Nothing changed in the kingdom of God. But Christians were fearful and mad and angry. It's like, I'm sitting there going, what's happening? People were leaving their churches, leaving their faith, mad at their pastors because, <laughs> and you have a bunch of reasons. Well, he's not taking a stand. Well, it may not be taking your stand in the way you think it ought to be taken. That's usually what we require. When we require somebody else to take a stand, it's because we're requiring them to take our stand the way that we think it should be taken. If you don't take my stand, then I'm going to cut you off, and we can't even have a rational conversation anymore. We can't even talk. Christians started leaving the church. They were mad. Most pastors experienced this. People were losing their faith. Guys, I don't get it. I'm sitting there looking at what Jesus taught. I didn't understand. People got mad and left their churches because they didn't like the way people in their churches were reacting, or they didn't like the way their, you know, what their, their pastor wasn't doing something he'd never done before. I'm sitting there thinking, guys, you know, we never changed. And this was happening across the board in the church of Jesus, in predominantly Democrat churches and Republican churches and black churches and white churches and left-leaning churches and right-leaning churches. It was happening across the board. There was all this chaos because we didn't have our eyes on the right thing. And so it caused a shaking and a stirring that caused us to look just as divided as the rest of the world in the midst of everything. You know, and I remember us being in this and feeling like at times that we were getting shot at from a couple different sides the whole time. And I, it reminded me, it actually reminded me of, of Dr. King when he wrote the, the letter from the Birmingham jail when he talked about, I feel like I'm getting shot from three sides at the same time. And he said, but that's how I know I'm going the direction I'm supposed to be going. I, that's how I know I'm doing the right thing. I don't know if you guys remember that. And Dr. King's got his statue on the mall in Atlanta now. Just saying, you know. And in Rome... I've been to Rome twice, and you look at the ruins of ancient Rome, guys, you can see the church of Jesus everywhere. There are crosses and little ichthus fishes and everything, everywhere etched in ancient stones everywhere. Guys, when we try to get our way and win by earthly standards, we'll lose before the battle's ever begun. And so I just was thinking we need to remember the kingdom that we're of. And I, and I saw that during this time between 2020 and 2021. I'm watching and I saw a number of things that just, that just grieved me in the midst of it all. I saw Christians cowering in fear. How many of you know that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear? We use wisdom and we have a sound mind. But we don't cower in fear. You know, I, I knew a, um, I knew a, I know of a, a traveling spirit-filled minister our family knows, some of you guys would know too. And it grieved me when I saw posts on social media that he was making, calling people, some of our world, some of our nation's leaders, calling them names openly on social media. And I'm sitting there going, that is out of character for you, bro. 
And that is not Jesus. It was nasty. Grieve my heart. And I saw the church rising up against the church. Guys, I don't know about you, but I'm scared to speak out against the body of Christ. I ain't going to do it. You know, and, and we do it over the littlest things. And that didn't just start in 2020. I started long before, but it escalated very quickly. We have no problem calling out another church, another pastor, another move, whatever it may be. And I think we got to be super careful. Because when we speak judgment and condemnation on another part of the body of Christ, we're calling on ourselves because we're part of the body. Right? We may not agree with it, you know, and I hear it all that, well, they don't preach hell enough, or they're too grace, or, or I think their message is too watered down, or, or they're too, you know, whatever. I say, be careful. If we are walking together believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you better be careful speaking against it, right? Doesn't mean you necessarily agree with everything they're doing. You don't have to. But you also don't have to write scathing things about them and call them out by name on social media, right? I remember a I remember a spirit-filled pastor in 2020, and I, I'll be honest, he was getting a lot of, he was putting up videos, and, and there was a lot of the church was loving what he saying, because he was passionate. Ugh. I had quite a few folks in our church. Some of y'all sent me his videos, and I watched some of them. Until the day I saw the news, some of you will remember this, that he walked into a Dunkin' Donuts, and he was told when he walked in, they said, sir, the next time you come in, we're going to have to ask you to please wear a mask. It's our corporate policy. Now, I don't care where you stand on a mask. You don't, I, guys, I hate masks. I, I'm not going to get in arguments over what they filter and what they don't. I don't really care. I really don't. But here's my reaction. If I don't like that, if I don't like that Dunkin' Donuts policy, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to another donut shop. By the time this was over, this pastor had kicked a glass door and had threatened to get his work boot and kick the employee at the counter in the face and knock their teeth down his throat is what he said. And then he went out to the parking lot and he recorded this on Facebook Live from the parking lot. And I saw thousands of Christians applauding his stand. And I thought, Jesus, where, where, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? This is wrong. This is wrong. This is not the kingdom that we're of. Disagree all you want, but that's not the kingdom. D d disagree with, with what's going on in the world. You know, disagree with Matt. I don't care. That's not, the, that's not our kingdom, though. That's not our kingdom. Guys, what was happening? We couldn't even have a conversation. You were either one way or the other. Are you red? Are you blue? Are you vaxxed? Are you anti-vaxxed? And, and you couldn't even ask a question. Or you would be rated. And you couldn't continue the conversation. Guys, of all the people on the planet, as Christians, we have no excuse. We serve a king, and he has made his will known, and he has made it clear, and his will intersects with every area of our life. Every relationship, every dollar we spend, every action we take, every word we speak, every reaction, his will is supposed to inter inter intersect with that. So many churches started getting all political. Guys, I'm not saying you don't stand for what's right, Okay? But many churches began alienating half of America who were supposedly trying to reach for Christ. And um, we were afraid of many things. I think we were afraid of losing our voice, losing our influence, losing our rights. Everybody kept saying we're afraid we're losing our religious liberty. Did we really? We got to take a stand. But can you imagine saying that to people in many other countries of the world today? Guys, there will be Christians martyred today. And I had people arguing that we were under severe, such severe persecution that Jesus must be coming back soon. I'm going, really? He ain't experienced nothing yet. 
<laughs> he promised persecution, didn't he? Didn't Jesus promise it? <laughs> you ain't experienced nothing yet, right? Guys, the church always looks better when we're fighting for other people's rights than demanding our own. The church always looks better when we're fighting for other people's rights than demanding our own. When we start fighting for our own rights and making that the focus, then we've lost the point. We've lost the battle. We, I don't know about you, but I have been crucified with Christ and I've been told it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And I, guys, somebody crucified doesn't even really have rights. Isn't that true? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I think the best way for us to lose our religious liberty is for us to pick up the weapons of the world and try to respond as the world does and implement them because we're going to lose. And look, guys, I don't pretend to have gotten things right over the last few years. I don't pretend to have gotten everything right in this. But what really concerned me is I felt there were so many influential Christian leaders that reacted as if the kingdom of God hung on the thread of a political party or of a political candidate. And there was nothing further from the truth. Nothing further. As I watched and wondered if we'd forgotten what it meant to be a Christ follower. I need to, I need to wrap it up. Guys, how many of you know that the statement, actions speak louder than words, is very true? But I would present to you that reactions speak louder than both. Reactions. Our reactions to things, when things don't go our way, speaks more about our confidence in God than anything else does. Everybody, every, everybody knows how to act when things are going their way, right? We all know how to act. That's why it's called acting. We all know how to behave, right? I mean, look at you all just sitting here all behaved. I guarantee you, you don't always act this behaved, do you? You got your moments that you don't look this behaved because it's called acting. You know how to act. You know how to behave. Actions do speak louder than words, but reactions speak louder than both. Reactions speak louder than both. <laughs> it's when things don't go our way, when somebody gets in our way, when a Christian decides I'm not getting my way right now, but I'm gonna have my way and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get my way. And I'm gonna do it under the guise of some verse that I found in the Old Testament or some New Testament scripture I'm taking out of context. Then we got a problem, right? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Do you realize about a third of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, don't react like everybody else does. Be different. Whatever they expect of you, do the opposite. <laughs> don't respond like they do. Don't respond like the world. That's, that's, that's like a third of the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is what he's saying. Is what he's saying through there. Don't go there. And Jesus would have said, if you want to know what that looks like, follow me. Follow me for three years. Follow me to the moment I was arrested. Follow me to the cross. And you'll see the example to follow. You know why they brought half an army to arrest Jesus? Because they thought he would resist. Right? They thought he'd resist. Instead, he's like, I'm here. Take me. Peter's sitting there going, you're kidding. I've got a sword. <laughs> and shortly he ran. Right? Too often as a church of Jesus, we've put our Christianity aside and we've lost our witness and we've reacted just like everybody else. 
We're not getting anybody's attention because we look just like everybody else. It's destroying our witness. And part of the problem is because of what's happened in our world and where we're at, the problem is not that people don't believe what we believe. The problem is they don't believe that we believe what we say we believe. We've got to begin to walk it out and recognize that we're part of a different kingdom. And this is going to look different than the world around us. Bringing it down to a point. Guys, I'm very glad that God gave you the ability to choose Jesus. You get to choose Jesus, right? But you don't have the ability. You don't get, have the right to choose what that looks like, what that sounds like, what that reacts like. That's already been like prescribed for us. You get to choose whether to follow Jesus, but you don't get to choose what that looks like. You want to know what it looks like? It looks like Jesus. It looks just like him. It looks, it acts, it sounds, it reacts just like Jesus does. Guys, I don't know what you label yourself. You may label yourself by a political party. I don't know. All I know is I serve a king. Many of you know that the term Christian was used the first time in Antioch, right? And it literally means anointed one. It's where we get the word Messiah. And you have this group of, of Gentiles that's looking at this other like subgroup of Gentiles and they're going, wow, they're behaving weirdly. They're acting so odd compared to everybody else. And here's the thing. They believe that the term Christian was not even necessarily a religious term. They believe it was actually a political term that was given to them. The believers in Antioch were not seen as changing religions. Not like they left one religion to join another religion. Religion. They noticed that they changed allegiance. It was evident by their behavior that they had changed their allegiance. Now, in ancient times, the, the, the secular and the spiritual were like in two different realms. So, you, realms. so you had like the gods and wherever they dwelt, and then you had humans, and generally they never interacted. And the gods were good as long as people worshiped them and kept them appeased. The gods were good and, good and didn't care how you acted. And Rome didn't care who you worshiped. And so suddenly you've got these new people that step up, and they begin declaring that the divine, a God, has put on flesh, and he's dwelt among us, and his name is Jesus. And he's not just concerned about how we worship. He's told us how to live. And they were saying, we have dedicated ourselves to this brand new invisible king and his kingdom. And y'all know that shortly thereafter, it becomes a crime to be a Christian in Rome, didn't it? And you talk about persecution. That was severe persecution. And, they, and, and it was not, the persecution was not because of the God that they worshiped. It was because of their allegiance. It was more political than it was religious. They swore allegiance not to a religion, but to a king, to a different kingdom. Guys, we've got to follow the example of Jesus. We, we know how to make Christians. We know how to lead people to Jesus. I mean, we need to do a better job of that too. But, but we know how to do that. But what if we decided to be Christians and to act like Jesus and to react like Jesus in the world today? 
we got to live and react as partisans of a king who established an upside down, others first, back of the line kingdom fueled by a single command, love others as I have loved you. And when you do, actually, when you don't know what to do, the easy answer is you do what love requires, just like Jesus. When you don't know what to say, you do what love requires because that's what Jesus would do. And guys, you recognize that this is why we, this is why we forgive. Not, not just because, well, the Bible says you should forgive, but we forgive because we were forgiven. When he says carry other people's burdens, we don't just do it because the Bible says to. We do it because at the cross, he carried our burdens. According to Jesus, when somebody considers you an enemy, you don't return the favor. When somebody speaks negatively of you, you don't return the favor. When somebody flips you off in traffic, you don't return the favor. When somebody spreads lies about you, you don't return the favor. When somebody calls you names, you don't return the favor. That's a backwards world compared to what we live in, is it not? And what if we just did that? Let's be kind, yet be willing to call out unkindness. Let's be honest and be willing to call out dishonesty around us, especially when it undermines somebody's dignity. Let's not settle for being law-abiding citizens or patriotic Americans. Those are good things, but we're of a different kingdom. We have a much higher calling. Last verse. Philippians 2.14, some of you know this. What does Paul tell us to do? He's, and this is going to take all the fun out of being an American for some of you. <laughs> do all things without complaining and disputing. The word disputing in other translations is arguing. I hear people today say, I just love to argue. I love that. I love getting, debating and arguing. You know, it's like, do all things without complaining and arguing. Well, what am I going to do then? That's my to-do list, right? <laughs> That's what we do as Americans. We argue and we complain. You're of a different kingdom. And why does he say, just quit arguing and complaining? Because of verse 15, he says that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. I hear people saying, oh, the world's getting so bad. It's so bad. It's so bad. I'm going, it's kind of like a crooked and perverse generation. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like a crooked. It's like, that's what the Bible says. It's a crooked and perverse generation. What do we expect? But we're to be a light, right? Let your light shine in a way that people may see. What are they going to see? They're going to see your reaction to all that's going on. They're going to look at you and go, that's really weird because if that had happened to me, I would not have reacted that way. And they're going to check you out. But if you look just like they would have, they're never going to take notice. They're never going to see it. And that reaction from a little church of uneducated Galileans would change the whole world. Would change everything. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus who came to serve, not to be served. How many of you know that Jesus invites us to abandon our independence and to take up our cross and to follow him? So let's follow him. Let's love and let's lead the way so the church of Jesus can once again not only impact our nation, but impact the world.
Let's not do what we can justify. Let's do what's responsible. For too long, we've tried to push the line in different things. It's not about what we can justify. It's about what's responsible. Let's stop trying to win and lose our fear of losing because the Bible says the victory is already ours. And close with this. For a long time, um, Christian and secular scholars have tried to explain how a handful of uneducated Galileans could overthrow an empire and change the world. And, um, you know, they're, they're going, how is it that this, within a short period, this empire that crucified Jesus would throw away all their gods and embrace Jesus as God. How is that possible? So like I say, Christian and secular scholars for years have tried to study and figure out these things. And, and so nobody could explain it. And, and of course, the best way to explain it is to ask those who are there. And, and that's what we call the book of Acts. That's what we see in the book of Acts. But it's totally unbelievable. So people for decades trying to explain this. So I'm going to end with a quote. And this is from an atheist scholar. His name is Bart Ehrman. At the end of his book, The Triumph of Christianity, he speaks on the rise of Christianity. And here's what he says. Because, because here's the deal, guys. It, historically, the impact that Christianity made on the world, regardless of your position, is undeniable. Here's what he said. He said, Christianity not over, only took over an empire. Guys, remember, this is our history. These are our people. Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy. And even on a more fundamental level, it changed the very understanding of billions of people of what it even meant to be human. However one evaluates the merits of the case of whether the Christianization of the West was a triumph to be treasured or a defeat to be lamented, no one can deny that it was the most monumental cultural transformation that our world has ever seen. No one can deny it. That's our kingdom. That's the kingdom that we are of. Why? Because Jesus is a different kind of king and he has established a different kind of kingdom. And if you have said yes to him and surrendered your heart to him, then you are now his subject and you are part of his kingdom. Worshippers live a life of devotion to a different kingdom. Our allegiance is to him. How do you know that we're on a mission? He has temporarily placed us in this world. The Bible says as aliens in this world, pointing a lost and dying generation to Jesus, Right? And that is our witness. Followers of Jesus turned the world upside down. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to do it again. I'm ready to see the last great move of God in the earth, and I want to be right in the middle of it. We're not striving to win. We're striving to bring his kingdom. Let's get our shine on. We don't have to call ourselves Christians. Let's be Christ followers. Let's look just like them. Amen? I was jotting down more notes during worship. I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stop. Let's stand up. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'll say my stuff in closing. <laughs> Third closing. Guys, this backwards kingdom that we're a part of is so different. This backwards kingdom 
that you're a part of says, like Zach said, and like Miss Joan said Friday night at our healing service, you've already been healed. You are the healed. That doesn't make any sense in this kingdom. That kingdom says, give and it shall be given. That makes no sense. You want more, you don't give more away. It makes no sense. Because we're part of a backward, upside. really, this is the kingdom that's backward and upside down. Right? It's the opposite. Spirit break out. <laughs> we want to see your kingdom here. Guys, the kingdom of God is here because you are here. You bring the kingdom of God to earth. Right? You give glimpses of the kingdom of God to every person that you come in contact with by your reactions, by your attitudes, by your kindness and your love. That brings the kingdom of God into people's lives. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. First and foremost, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't surrendered, bowed your knee to the Lordship of Jesus. It is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And I implore you right now, if you haven't said yes to him, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about a prayer you prayed at vacation Bible school when you were six. I'm talking about the surrender of your life and saying, Lord, I lay my life down before you, my, my desires and my dreams and everything. I lay it all before you. And I choose to follow you. If you've never repented and turned from your sin, this is your moment. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It also says we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be free from those things that you're carrying and that shame and that guilt and those different things that have been eating you up for so long. you can become a citizen of a brand new kingdom right now. If you've never done that, you're part of the kingdom of the world. You're part of a cursed and a fallen world. That's your kingdom. But listen to me, when John 3.16 promises eternal life, it doesn't start the day you die here. That eternal life starts the moment you say yes to Jesus and you are literally plucked out of, that, out of the kingdom of the world and you're adopted, you're grafted into the kingdom of God. And you can be assured that every moment of your life, the creator of the universe is walking with you and he's encouraging you and he's got you by the hand and the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you and empower you to be everything that he's called you to be. He won't leave you up short. He empowers you for what it is he's called you to. Every head bowed, if that's you, if there's anybody here that would say, I need to say yes to Jesus today, I just want you to lift up your hand. Anybody here, wave it up high if that's you. Anybody here? Needs to say yes to Jesus today. All right. Anybody else? Come on. You may be watching online. It, it may be today. It may be another day. It doesn't matter. It's the same Holy Spirit that's there right now drawing you. He's pulling at you. He's saying, come on, let's go. Come with me. Follow me. Say yes to Jesus. I'm going to pray a prayer and I just invite you. You can pray the words that I pray. You can say it in your own words. It's not so much about the words as it is the posture of a heart. Just you're willing to repent, turn from your sinful ways. Leave the past behind and say yes to Jesus, embracing him 
as your perfect lamb, your perfect sacrifice, your Messiah, your Savior, and to follow him to the end, allowing him to use you to make a difference in this world. Just pray something like this. As Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I recognize without him, I'm utterly bankrupt. I'm lost and alone. I'm dead in my sin. I'm eaten up with guilt and shame. And today I surrender to you. I lay those things at your feet. I repent. I turn from them. I recognize that you paid the price for them. And you cover them with your blood. You promise to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I say, Father, forgive me and cleanse me today. Jesus, I declare that you are now Lord of my life. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you died in my place and you rose from the dead. Today, I call you my very own, my Savior, my Messiah. And I choose to follow you to the end. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be everything you call me to be. I'll follow you to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, bear with me for another, just another couple of moments. I want to sing this chorus again. Guys, the kingdom of heaven is with you. The kingdom of God is in you. So as we sing this word, these words, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me right now? What are the perspectives that I need to change? And the way that I've been looking at things and the way I've been responding and reacting to things, what is it that I need to change? Help then just asking the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, help me to remember the kingdom that I'm of so that I can be that shining beacon of hope to this lost and dying world. Allow him to speak to you. Allow him to be everything that you need in this moment and know that he won't leave you even as you walk out these doors. He's going to be with you, speaking to you, leading you, and guiding you into everything he created you for. You have purpose. There's a plan for your life to do things that you couldn't imagine. Just say now, say, Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me today? If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.